welcome to Altered Fates. My name is Abla El Sharnubi. Altered Fates is a podcast about turning points and how we choose to navigate them. Each episode, I invite a guest to tell me about a moment in their lives where events conspired to instigate change and propel them forward. In this episode, I spoke to Mo Ayu. Mo is a Radio 1 presenter and continuity announcer on Channel 4. Like me, he's of Egyptian descent and grew up in the UK. We talked about the experience of being bicultural, the sometimes harsh reality of getting your dream job, and how having a distinctive voice can take you places. Hope you enjoy. My first fellow Egyptian on the podcast, so I'm well, excited. Where have they been before this? I don't know. I mean, I need to find more. Maybe, you know, we could collaborate and find some more. There's a whole list of people out there. I think it's just it's quite baffling from time to time that, like, we come across each other, either fellow Egyptians or fellow Arabs, and you you just wonder where, where on earth we've been. Where, where were you hiding? Because yeah. I know they're out there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I know. It's a, it's a funny one, but I'm very glad to have you here. So Thanks. it's a good start. Um, So look, I usually start off by asking my guests, and I'm particularly interested to ask you this, um, knowing your background, is whether they believe in fate. Mm. So do you believe in fate? Well, fate's one of those things, I think, it's... It's one of those things that I guess it, it comes up in daily thought because you do wonder even from the basic levels of I wake up, my alarm clock goes off or bigger things like a job happens to fall into your lap or does it fall into your lap? How? Mm. It's fate's one of those things that I, I guess it straddles a line in my thought constantly and I think weighing it up between religion and just fate in and of itself as as a topic is I do believe in it, but I think it's very easy when you are faithful, shall we say, whether it's Islam or otherwise, yeah. to lean on the faith aspect when something doesn't happen or something does happen. I think you can relate to this quite easily because you know, if if my car broke down, you go, Oh, what you're like, Oh, it was written. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That, like instantly, is that like the the concept of fate gets pulled away because you go, oh well, it was supposed to happen. Well, I think you're taught quite heavily to be grateful for whatever happened. So you're like, the car broke down. Oh, I must have been saved from some terrible accident yeah. that I was about to have, or <laughs> you know, or the car got fixed. Ah, oh, great, God is on my side. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. Of, which, to be honest, is a kind of pleasant way to spend your time. You know, mm. it's like it's always positive. Um, but yeah, like. I think as a as a Muslim, certainly that the, the written aspect is is heavy in the culture mm. as well, isn't it? Yeah, so. it, 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 it's something that I think I don't know, especially when you're when you're removed from it, I guess, uh, and you live here or you live away from uh, Muslim countries and and cultures that are embedded with that. You rely on that a lot more because I think it's an aspect of home, in a way. It's it's like you're trying to keep on the track. And the mindset of people from back where you're from or where your family are from, so it ends up being not not very much like fate. It's just more almost predictive, if you know what I mean. Um, I think raw fate in and of itself should just be left to do its thing, but it is very difficult to pull it away from such a strong cultural tie. Absolutely. It's, it is very much intertwined in a framework of thinking, isn't it? And, mm. you know, so that's you touched on something really interesting there. I think, you know, being bicultural and how the things that we hold on to 
you know, to, to kind of link us back to our... So were you born in the UK? So I was born in uh, in Egypt, in Giza, lovely Giza. Oh. I always get laughed at on my passport for that. And I go, <laughs> if you knew the reality. Um, and then I, we moved to the UK when I was three. And then I've lived here ever since. We dotted around the country as, again, many first uh, generation immigrant families do. Particularly, you know, my parents work in healthcare and they had to go through the same tropes as someone who had just finished uni because of this whole, oh, we don't recognize the years of work that you've put in. In Egypt, where people weren't getting any anesthetic when they were getting their stuff done, I had to go through that. I had to get stitches with no anesthetic. It was horrible. Like the, So they went through the military regime of that to come to the UK where it's Kushti and then still had to go to the start. So we dotted about between Blackburn, Bristol, Cardiff, ended up in Liverpool. And has that lingered, that feeling of kind of transience, has that lingered for you? Yeah, uh, I, I think like the transience, I don't think will, will ever go away at this point, which I don't think is a bad thing in certain ways because it, it grounds me. It reminds me that there are things like going back to going back to Egypt and seeing family and being able to have that cultural connection on like a superficial level of boarding a flight and leaving. But also deeper cultural aspects, I think, that you clock from going back to places several times over that you can embed into your life here. I think, I was, you know, that's really interesting because I, I certainly have a similar experience of ha having a family in another country and having traveled back there repeatedly. Um, you just have a slightly different perspective on like I always say like the world is a big place and there are many ways to live and I think if you stay in one place and you don't have that experience of living somebody somewhere else you can get quite um you know tunnel vision about stuff it's yeah. like well this is how it is it was particularly obvious to me during the pandemic because obviously every country was experiencing the same thing but the messaging was different the rules were different the you know and here it was very doom and gloom very restricted and I managed to get away for a month I was in Italy for a month Ooh. in 2020 yeah which felt really like radical and like my friend was like let's go and I was like okay we can't and she was like why and I was like because of the pandemic and she was like but the pandemic's there too so it's, it's fine so we went and it was so striking that when I got there, um, life felt completely different. Mm. Yes, there was a pandemic, but I was in a little village in Puglia in southern Italy. Everything, gents were coming out to have their coffee in the afternoon. The ladies were doing their cooking on the door. <laughs> so it was so chill compared to like, it felt like the Armageddon here, you yeah. know? And it was like, <laughs> wow. And that's, you know, and I think having always had roots in another place and, and maybe, you know, it's kind of what you're saying is... I often feel like I'm kind of a citizen of the world. I'm mm. like, I'm really comfortable going somewhere else and being like, how do these people live, you know? And I think it, you have that broadened horizon from the very beginning, which which can, I mean, the flip side of that is feeling a bit like never quite comfortable. You know, you're not quite comfortable in Egypt and you're not quite comfortable in England. You're Look, not that is that is a different topic for a different yeah, podcast where we have like six hours absolutely. because like the whole, the, the, that particular example of, you know, I go to Egypt and I think having lived in, in Morocco uh, and having family elsewhere in the, in the Arab world has messed up my accent because I go to Egypt now, you know, my skin hasn't seen sunlight for many years. I'm so sorry to my ancestors, but <laughs> yeah. I go and they're like, oh, are you Algerian, Moroccan, Tunisian, Libyan? And I'm like, 
is this based on my look? Is this based on my accent? Is this based on how I dress? Like, where, where's it lying? Because I sit there and I, I'm responding to them in Egyptian Arabic going, I'm from here. Like, I can give you the street that, like, I was born on. I can say the neighborhood that I'm from. Like, you know, I have this knowledge. So, like, why? And it doesn't help with the idea of being, feeling displaced. I think that there's certain elements and a weird way of, of my life and how it's worked. Like the rejection, I guess, in a way from locals in Egypt has helped me with how I see myself in in Spain, for instance. Like, you know, when I was growing up and learning Spanish and eventually got to uni and started learning Catalan, I would go. And I've done a lot of things in Barcelona in, in the music scene and... Um, and know people through and doing linguistic uh, training and excursions and stuff like that. And they don't bat an eyelid. You open your mouth and speak Catalan. They do not. I mean, they're shocked, but like, it's not in a way that they're like, where are you from? They're just like, oh. They're like, cool. Like, okay, impressive. Like, you can do it. Whereas I feel there's, and <sighs> having lived away from Egypt and for so long, in the Middle East, I think you go back and there's this not it's not a trial of fire, but like there's several steps to like regaining people's trust as that person from where you're from. Yeah, I like absolutely. And like it's almost like it's subtle as well. You know, it's like if I go say I take um, an English friend with me to Egypt and we go to the pyramids and they're like, yeah, two foreigners. And I'm like, bruv, I'm not a foreigner. <laughs> and he's like, he looks at me and, you know, he could just kind of looks at my clothes and goes you sure? And yeah. I'm like, I'm speaking to you in Arabic, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, it's like, it's almost like, I see it more as like, what category they're going to put you in? Because like, mm. people in Egypt are pretty, they're pretty friendly and they're pretty welcoming. Mm. And it's just like, am I in the inner circle again or no? You know, like, have I, have I graduated? What can I tell you? Can I tell you about, um, I don't know, the food we eat after Ramadan? What can yeah. I, how can I prove myself <laughs> here? You know? Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting thing. Like you say, it's a really big subject. Um, the whole kind of just you know where you fit kind of thing as a bicultural person. You are a you're a radio one DJ. You worked in community radio. Represent so music has been your thing. Music's been a constant thing. That was the thing that I, I guess through all of what I've mentioned about finding your place when you're growing up. With it being not that easy, I guess, music was the thing to lean on because, you know, you had mum singing Abdel Halim Hafiz yeah. at home, the classics. And then dad on the other side. Dad is the reason that I think I really dipped my toe in properly. And he, he he doesn't like it when I bring it up or he's either forgotten, maybe. But my first proper exposure to music was through him. He had, I don't know why, in hindsight, he had 50 cents CD, the single for In The Club, in the car. Your dad did? Yes, somehow, wow. somehow, it still baffles me to this day. He had it in the car. I remember finding it, taking it, and putting it in the in the computer at home. I was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "What is this?" Because I, I guess in at home in Egyptian homes, like when you're abroad, it's kind of like a mini embassy for Egypt. So like everything in there, the TV, the food, the music, it's all Egyptian, and that's great and that's wonderful. But like, you don't really, I'm not like. I feel like parents of our generation don't sit back and listen to music for hours. It's like, it's either embedded in between other things or like they'll turn on Mazika, Rotana, the, yeah. the, and the music channels and just 
play it that way. So as soon as I had the liberty of doing that and taking that CD and listening to it, I was like, this is amazing. So like hip hop was the start. And then my cousins um, were listening to Craig David and stuff. So somehow I had to go to the other side of the world to find out about Craig David back home because I wasn't going to get that link from my parents. So, so, um, so you heard Craig David in Egypt? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and wow. I was like, what the? I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> so like, it started like going to R&B and stuff. And it, it kept on that line for a while. And the thing that I noticed was my music taste was already more separate than other people in my friendship groups back home. Because when everyone was growing up 12, 13, 14, by that time, I arrived in Liverpool and a lot of teenage years or pre-puberty years are all based on you know it was a lot of indie yeah right. alternative and that the the gap just started getting wider and it got to the point where i remember i was getting really into i was deep into music i was listening to one extra i was listening to rinse i can't even remember how i found i mean, i found out about rinse because they'd come to liverpool and done a tour so i was like okay let me check these out so i was listening to all that stuff like drum and bass jungle Things that people in my school were not listed. They, they were not even close to. I remember coming in with the first gig CD and they were like, what the hell is this? The, what on earth is this? Stick the Wombats on. I was like, no, I didn't stick the Wombats on. Like, what a mess. And that all grew from the Craig David, like the roots yeah, of Craig yeah, David. Yeah, 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 it's so yeah. funny. I think people really, like, you know, the they it's you're one or the other, aren't you? You're an indie kid or a hip-hop kid. Yeah. And, they're like, and that informs your whole trajectory. And, like, you know, you can cross the streams later. But yeah, so brilliant. So Egypt was the source of your, like, R&B and hip-hop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think, like, my... Um, because I've got cousins who live in, in Dubai and that's my dad's side of the family. So when we, when we started out in life, we used to go see them, uh, like, in summers. And... They're way, my cousins are way older than me. Um, and the thing that you forget, or I guess you don't really twig at the age that you're at until you become an adult, is that that particular part of the world, the Gulf, not just Dubai, but the Gulf is is very Americanized in terms of their tastes because of the history and and recent happenings. So, so yeah, the, like e- Egypt was the, was the source of it, but a large part of it was based in, me going over that way and seeing what was happening elsewhere in in the Arab world and seeing the influence because I feel like Egypt's quite isolated because they kicked out the French, they kicked out the English, and <laughs> they're just they're headstrong, yeah. which is great. <laughs> but like the the external exposure and the the mixing of cultures as it was has kind of like gone a ways. I think. Yeah, I I, I absolutely see that. They're a few years behind other places mm. in terms of like receiving, you know, things like music and. Um, some popular culture stuff. Um, okay, so like, music is the the kind of career path of music is a is an unusual one, mm-hmm. you know. Or let's not say it's unusual. It's just that it's not beloved by parents. Yeah. <laughs> so you what 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 do your family do? Like, what's your background? So uh, my so my parents uh, like so they they work in healthcare. My grandparents on my dad's side worked in healthcare my grandparents on my mum's side uh one was in law and the my granddad was uh, worked for the aviation authority in egypt right uh so all very so like non non uh creative no no creative so how did whatever. it go down you really bucked a trend then so how did it go down when you started kind of veering into that 
entertainment industry. It took a long time for the acceptance of it, which isn't an unfamiliar case for many people. So I did languages at uni. And on the side of it, I did uh, student radio at Leeds and was just glued to that, glued to that. Like I, I missed lectures in first year and I'd always gone to class because you know, you'll be familiar with if you missed class in an Arab household, you're going to get screamed at. Oh, yeah. So I missed lectures and obviously didn't say anything. But I, from the moment I stepped into a studio in Leeds, they were like, you have a weird voice. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> They're like, get on mic. So like the aim was never to, to be on air. It was just to learn because I listened to these amazing, amazing um, presenters over the years. Like, yeah, I do owe a large part to to rinse and and one extra like Mr. Jam, DJ Target, like they like the mainstays, B traits. For not only expanding my musical horizons, but like just enlightening me on on that world. But initially, it was production. I was like, okay, let me just stay behind the scenes. Like I want to make stupid jingles. Like I didn't really know how to use any production software. I ran into the production studio and thought that you pitched your voice down by pitching your own voice down not using effects so I was, so I was like this is Christmas on lead student radio so then people were like you're an idiot but like they just left me to it because I was having fun but I think eventually by the end of uni I had, I'd had enough people going you have a weird voice it works on air that I was like okay let me try this thing so when the opportunities came up like I got a couple of recognitions in student radio during Leeds and that led me to doing a couple of cover shows on a national station, um, which I was very, very, very unprepared for. Baptism of fire kind of thing. Totally. In at the deep and, end. And I think having winged it in that part and not having the, the support of my parents fully was just total internal pressure and chaos in a sense because you're just in the dark. You are in the dark. You have your friends who did it with you, but because they did it with you at the same time, they're no necessarily... They're no, no wiser than you. Yeah, they're no wiser. They're no further ahead. They can't mentor you or give you advice because they're, they're just like, you just got to do it. But obviously, like, I mean, that does sound pretty stressful. And, you know, but there's something inside you that was just like, well, I'm just going to plow on. I'm going to drive forward. So it was obviously a real passion. And mm. so, okay, you're going to tell me about a turning point. Give me a bit of background about where you were at before this this event happened well i guess it was it was in this turning point was i just moved to london like i was doing radio uh like my first full-time job at a radio station that's not around anymore i was there for on, only up until my probation so six months it was a pretty intense six months like i only just moved properly into my full-time house in London so before that when I was freelancing I'd come down on a Sunday stay in a hostel till Friday go home do all my freelance work so you know you're adjusting to a new environment I wasn't far away from friends but like the house that I was in wasn't the best and I think that that, that really affected me because I'd moved in around the time of uh, Ramadan and I just remember this argument that I had with one of my housemates who called a house meeting because I left a plate on the side from having suhoor, which isn't an issue. Oh, wow. So just, just to explain, suhoor is like people who fast during Ramadan often wake up just before dawn to have a meal. Yeah. Sort of very, very early breakfast. So you'd gotten up in the night, had suhoor, yeah. left your plate because it was probably four in the morning. Mm. 
and gone back to bed and gone back to and bed and someone called a house meeting and someone called a house meeting and they were like we don't care about I don't care if it's Ramadan like you keep the house clean whatever and I was just and all the housemates were just looking at looking at this person like what on earth is and I was like okay so this is how it is so that's the kind of personal life context to what's what's going on at work and that slowly turned into the unhealthy obsession that I think a lot of people get when they first start in radio and they have access to a, a studio is staying there at all hours of the day just just because and especially in community radio because the the community bit is so key because it's just the door of people coming and going all the time so you can have umpteen chats you can have the same chat 20 times with 20 different people and get 20 different outcomes super interesting people super interesting and you know i i'd come from uh outside Liverpool where I'd spent the past 10, 11 years being the only Egyptian in miles and one of three brown kids in a school of 1500. So wow. like for me, it was... A... Suddenly you're steeped in this kind yeah. of multicultural environment. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you, you kind of get a, a, a feeling of, of home in a sense because you're, you're, you're part of the fabric. But work-wise, I was being pushed, I guess, in, in directions that I didn't really admit at the time that I didn't like being pushed in but there's this element of saying yes so you were un you were under pressure to perform yes yeah. so yeah so okay so you're you suddenly got this full-time job in radio which is what you've been wanting totally like things are coming together you've moved to london you're meeting all these mm. amazing people but it's all a lot it is, basically it is, it's it... high stake stuff like home is you know a bit tricky with your you know meeting calling housemate yeah I mean, calling meetings is just not, it's not it, the one, the, is it? Like, what the hell? Everyone needs to just calm down about calling Seriously? a Seriously? Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. I've not had one since. I've been here for five years. I've not had one since. I don't know what, what B was in their bonnet that day. I mean, but anyway, God bless that person, wherever they yeah, are. Yeah, well, wherever they um, are, I hope they're well. I hope they're doing okay. Yeah, I hope they're yeah. not doing any more meetings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, so you're in a really high stakes situation, but things yeah. are really starting to come together for you. And Yeah, and we get to the end of six months and near my probation meeting and and I sit down with them and they say, you know, for unfortunately we're not gonna be able to renew your contract. And my heart just sinks. I'm just like not only do I feel like there was this like full circle moment where I'm out of the loop again in life, but now I feel like I'm out of the loop in an environment where I'm comfortable in. Oh, that's and so and tough. and that that throws you off off kilter. <laughs> For a while because you go i've been doing at that point i've been doing radio for four or five years and regardless of what student radio is like that's still some level of experience and i'd even ma like helped manage the student radio station for two years so i felt like i knew something and then had gone through an internship with the bbc and elsewhere and i got into this place and it just felt like all of that has just been removed. So then what, what are you left with? Up, Pulled at that the rug point, from you know? under your feet. Yeah. And also particularly when it's kind of the thing you've been working towards, having this, you know, job as a presenter and, you know, and a full-time job and your whole life kind of hinges on your job when you've just moved to London. You, at mm. that age, you don't have a safety net. And, you know, so, wow, it's a, that's a huge fallout. Yeah. So what did you do next? What happened? Very fortunately, like the the links that I that I still had at the BBC, I emailed them and I was like, uh, very sheepishly, I'm back on the market. Like, <laughs> I hit them up. I remember like 
I'd done a couple of freelance shifts at Kiss as well. So I reached out to them too. Uh, and I was on track with that for a bit and things were, things were good. And then life again, the full circle moment came back and this guy, it's like, he must be like six, five, six, seven works at the BBC. Six, seven. He's tall. He's a tall guy. He's a very tall and like very deep voice. And I, I remember we, we done like, uh, guest mixes for some radio show somewhere. And you always like to see what other people do in radio. You're like, oh, what's he do? And it said, said this thing on his thing, continuity announcing at Channel 4. And I was like, what on, What the hell is that? I was like, what? So I remember seeing him in the office. And I was like, what is, what's continuity announcing? With no expectation of anything at all. I was like, what is this? He was like, oh, you know, the voices in between the programs. And I was like, no. Because, like, you know, who does? Who, who sits there and actively Even listens? Even like, you, you, you totally, when someone says it, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah Those yeah. guys. But you don't actually kind of pay attention to no, them when you're never. watching TV. Yeah. So he was like, you've got a weird voice. And I was like, oh, <laughs> not again. Really? Was, we're really, people really saying weird? Well, well at the start, unusual. yeah. At, at the start, yeah. Eventually, it became the the, the softer term. Unusual. Uh, unique. Think, yeah, okay, unique. Great. Yeah. Great. But I know at the, at the heart of it, someone's going, what? Where's where where, this guy where is from? Yeah. What, what is he eating? <laughs> um, so he was like, you know, you should try it out. Like, go record something and I'll send it to Channel 4. And I was like, ah, stop it. So I, like, I carried on, like, you know, freelancing for a bit. Didn't put it in the back of my head. And then one day I was like, maybe I, sh- maybe I should. So then, like, I remember going into Represent. I'd moved to Represent at that point, And God bless it for all the opportunity it's given me. But... I went into the production studio. I went on YouTube Ripper and got the end of Coach Trip at the start of Come Down With Me, all these things that, that were out there. Scripted some stuff and I was like, this is nonsense. This is absolute, like this stuff on this paper is going nowhere. This is horrible. But obviously you're in it now. I've booked out the time in the production studio. I can't leave because uh, my man, my manager will get annoyed because someone could have been recording their show instead of me just prattling about. <laughs> So like I've recorded this thing. I gave I gave it to to this guy. The tall um, man. The, the tall man, Gully. Uh and he's like, okay, I'll send it. And I kid you not, in what must have been 48 hours, the manager, the continuity manager at Channel 4 uh emailed me and he was like, Hi Mo, like we've had time to listen to your to your reel. We'd love to get you in to actually like try, do a proper test. And I just read it and I was like like after all the chaos that had happened, I was you're like, like what? What? Like <laughs> what? On earth? Like no, surely not. Like this must be a, a wind up, um, because TV TV was something completely new to me. Never touched it in terms of like work. I, I like there was no crossover whatsoever, so I had no idea. I just remember going to Channel Four, like the the big building with the big four, and I was like, what the like? Because the BBC is is um imposing but like they don't have anything that 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 screams at you really like the bbc logo is quite right general, so you know? it's, yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's it's you know it's the bbc but it's not like it's not like pa yeah whereas the like channel, the channel four building like you have a big steel four multicolored four there you're like whoa wow. like, this is insane so i remember walking in and everything's like feels futuristic like the the reception's all made out of glass they're like just wait like Paul will come and get you. And I was like, okay. 
that he came and got me and he was like, welcome and showed me around. And I was like, this like, you know, you have those experiences in life that just completely blow your mind. Like I'd spent all this time doing radio and now I'm, I'm doing ra doing radio on telly basically, but like the whole- It's a whole different ball game. You're like, we are not thing. in Kansas yeah. anymore. Yeah. So I get taken to one of the booths. They're like, read the scripts for us that someone else had made. I was like, okay, read them. I, I found them the other day, actually. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Like, my, my voice has m matured in a good way. Uh, and then they were like, okay, we're going to take you upstairs now and you can script for a shift. So hold on. You have to write the links. Mm -hmm. you did, so as the continuity person, and here he is, everybody. He's right here. He here. Is? here he what is. This is the voice on Channel 4. <laughs> Not at all. Because now I'm talking to you, Ram. I'm like, I've totally heard you on Channel yeah. 4. I know. Um, but So that's super interesting. You guys write the stuff yeah so and i think that's a lot um that's a pretty unique thing i think like other tv channels have that i think they do give the ability for their announcers to script some things but not as like channel four i think you get an extra dose of freedom because they want you to be you because like a voice of channel four is a voice of channel four you can't be replicated elsewhere right so I was scripting all this stuff. And in my head, I'm still like, this is nonsense. But how do you know what to say? Like, what were you saying? Exactly. Give me an example. Do a little linky link, Mo. Oh, a linky link off the top of my head. Okay, so for instance, first dates. This is my kind of go-to because it's very familiar. So you go, yeah. it's something like, now on channel four with strong and saucy language. Boys, today is not your day. Girls, the presents are in the corner. And Fred has a lot of surprises for you in brand new first dates. Oh my god, that was so, brilliant! So that like that it's it's something along those lines. Like you need to basically take that you know we get the programs to watch beforehand. Hence why when you hear like when you actually pay attention to the announcer, you go, hmm, I know this. Hey, they're in the know. Yeah, because everyone thinks that we're we're watching it as it goes along, and we're just like creating this magic on the fly. Like the the scripting stuff happens a day before, for instance. So we're you know picking the most interesting bits from from the shows and i'm being told to do that this training and uh i'm just like in my head i'm still like this is so absurd because radio is completely different like you pick info about an artist or you pick their backstory or how it relates to you or it, it feels more personable because you're it is more personable in well, a way it's like a more intimate chat with someone yeah, isn't whereas it? like yeah. con continuity is is largely you're you're trying to invoke a certain feeling for people to stay and watch something. So did that, left channel four for the day. And I was like, I was like, you know what? Even if this was a day out, this was the best day out I've ever had. <laughs> um, and then again, like it didn't even take that long. Like a, a day went by and then uh, Paul emailed me and he was like, great, you're on board. You've got 12 weeks of training. Um, so free your calendar up. And it was like 12 weeks, Monday to Friday of training on scripting, um, shadowing people who'd been doing it for like 20, 30 years. Um, I think one one night when I was training, I got pretty much left to it and just went live with that person like overseeing me. And then oh there I am, he was like, he's the, he was like very, very, um, very energetic and like, and brash. And he was just like, right, get in the seat. Uh, you're gonna go into Goggle box. This is going to one and a half million people now, and I'm like, why are you saying oh, this? Oh, mate, that's why? <laughs> why are you saying this? I don't want to know that. Like, because you, you can't see it because the 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 booth is literally just a series of screens. Like, if anyone's ever watched uh, something that where you've got people in a TV gallery, yes, 
it's a similar thing. So you've got like a screen for live broadcast, a screen for uh, the program that you need to preview with the people pushing the buttons, and then the schedule that just is like a grid. So you don't have any view of the viewer or what they could even be like or how many of them there could be. It's so stripped back. You feel quite sort of secluded in yeah, a way. Totally, yeah, totally, totally. So, yeah, the, and I think uh, it's coming up to four years of doing that now. And it's live, and though. It's live. It's live. It's live. That way. So, oh, my God. Because have, have you never ever heard someone cough or like they stumble on their words. I've done it many times where I've like run out of breath. So Whoa. Like, so that, which is uh, highly embarrassing. I must say, <laughs> like, it, it's like, you know, you're introducing something and you're like. <laughs> Long sentence. And then, yeah, and then you have to just like pick up and carry on. And like, you just look at the people pushing the buttons and they are howling. And you're like, oh my God, like, this is ridiculous. Um, but like, it's been four years of, of doing that. And I think in the large part of going back to fate, I guess, like, that's wound back to me presenting and it actually helped with my presenting and in what way because once you realize that you're you're broadcasting like people wouldn't necessarily consider it proper broadcasting but it is you're you're, you're doing it to large audiences so you have to get comfortable in front of a mic like properly comfortable not just like you would do on community radio every week or whatever like this is you know it's a job you're not putting your own time into it uh, for free. Like you're getting paid for this. So you have to do it right. And, and, you know, I guess getting, like you were saying, getting really comfortable in front of a microphone in terms of how that affects your radio presenting, getting comfortable with yourself as well, isn't it? You know, like this is, this is me. This is how I, this yeah. is how I do this. Yeah. It sounds like that termination of your contract ended up being a pretty great thing amazing thing yeah that that turning point has has helped create did help create an entire new path because things keep cropping up whether it is in in continuity announcing or voiceovers or radio like i have the confidence now whereas i think the how can i put this lightly i don't think i can the destruction of my persona when i got when i got told to leave that job and then the rebuilding of it into like a much more put together like screwed on tuned in being within the media industry within music and stuff has benefited me greatly and all of it is in line with the things that I want to do and I think the key thing is for the whole time from when I started out to now is that the thing in my head is is about representation like where are the Arabs? Where are that's, they? <laughs> and, and I know that that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say in a certain way because people on the stereotypes of Arabs instantly look at the Arabs from the Gulf wearing the Ghatra Kandora. They drive a G-class Mercedes. Yeah. They live in the Burj Khalifa. They have extravagant everything. But they don't realize on the reality of it that that's, that's just like, that's such a small part of it. And it's really hard to break away from that and tell people otherwise because you feel like when you're saying it to them, it's like they've almost washed over all of the struggles that your everyday Arab person has had to face. 
whether that be a someone who's North African or Egyptian, Libyan, or from the Gulf or from the Levant. Like, not to deep it too much, but 9-11 made life very difficult. Absolutely. For, and it still makes it difficult for us now yeah. because of the perception that we that we get. And I think that, that, unfortunately, like that was such a defining moment for so many people that, that there's still some remnants of how pe- of the slight against us in, within the media industry and even from behind the scenes it's like you know because th- you see other people from other uh, ethnic backgrounds and they say where they're from and the ha- and how they relate to it and and stuff like that and there's still a big engagement with it whereas as soon as you say muslim or I'm muslim arab. or i'm arab like the Egyptian thing is a different thing because people lean on other crutches more, for that. More, which, more pyramids and pharaohs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Egyptology, big thing. Yeah, yeah, Great, yeah. cool. But like when you actually de- say your ethnic background as Arab mm. and that you're Muslim, the the shutters come down slightly. Hell of a lot of baggage. There's yeah. a lot of baggage attached to that. And, you know, like obviously, I don't, yeah, it, it's it's been... There, there has been a huge shift and there was I remember reading a lot of stuff about how if the kind of the 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 whitewash of propaganda around being Arab or Muslim, particularly Islam, more than Arab I would say, since nine eleven, if another ethnic group or religious group would were if the same language was used about another religious group, there would be uproar. Mm. But it was absolute blanket propaganda like anti-muslim propaganda and obviously and then there's been isis and there's been syria and since then there's been so much but it's so i don't think people realize how you're you're just on the defensive immediately going but we're not all like that you know the the religion isn't like that there are so many you know and and that obviously i mean i remember after 9 11 and i you know i'm i think another interesting aspect of it is that it's a lot of the time how you're received in society is dependent on how you look, how you present. Are you do you immediately look like a Muslim? Have you got a beard? Are you wearing a tarha? You know, have you got your hair covered, a hijab? Um, are you wearing a abay? All of that stuff. And because I'm I you know, I, I don't have covered hair and I wear Western clothes and if to look at me, you couldn't really tell where I'm from. You know, if you've got a keen eye, you can see that I'm Middle Eastern, but otherwise I could be Spanish or something. Mm. So I didn't encounter a lot of racism on face value, you know, when people didn't know me. But after nine eleven I remember calling up, I was trying to um rent a flat and this woman was taking my name over the phone. And I've got a long name, you know, and I was like, A-B-L-A-E-L hyphen. No, I'm not finished yet. S-H-A, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. And she yeah. just went, I'm sorry, I can't spell that. And it was clearly, you know, it was clearly, I thought you don't know me from Adam, man. Like you're just li- mm. literally looking at my name on a piece of paper. And it, you know, and it suddenly put me on the back foot in the way that I have been privileged not to have experienced mm. because of all the things I've just said. Um. And so, yeah, it's 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 frustrating. And, you know, we're saying, like, where are all the Arabs? Obviously, there are places in London where you can go and see a ton of Arabs, you know, go yeah, to yeah. Harrods. <laughs> there are a lot of Arabs. <laughs> yeah. Go to Edgware Road. <laughs> there are a lot of Arabs. But, you know, I'm interested in, I mean, you know, there are Arabs in London. Obviously, they're, they're around and, and stuff. But where are the Arabs in 
in the creative industries. Do you know what I exactly. mean? Where are the Arabs in the media? Where are the, I want to talk to those people about how how they consume British culture that we've mm. grown up in, how they connect that, like we've been talking about with their roots, you know. How does it feel? How do you feel about the stuff in, you know, the bombardment of kind of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim content in the news that's so, so extremely biased, even though it's supposed to be kind of, you know, balanced or whatever. And it, yeah, those, wherever you are, guys, come out and talk to us. Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> please, tell us what you think. But yeah. there's also... The thing that I had to be in my bonnet about in terms of representation in, in the media and people being either voices or faces on non-Arabic speaking channels is that we still have we still have stories like everyone else. We have personal stories that will help tell the subject matter that, that's needed, right? One last question for you. So from your kind of dark night of the soul and then your rise again into the, you know echelons of channel four and the bbc what are your takeaways from that like what what did you learn from that what was the thing the nugget were the nuggets i think the the biggest thing i think i probably had forgotten it so maybe i hadn't necessarily learned it afresh but i definitely relearned it is just like trust in yourself and the process and in that bit that is where fate works in ways that you can't say inshallah <laughs> that i think yeah. like that you can't just say like oh it's like god's will like there are things that you get caught up in the cycle of life so much that you can't track what's happening necessarily but things have happened for a reason and fate has worked in ways that have that's led you to that spot you just have to trust in yourself because I think if you don't trust in yourself, then you're not even letting fate be able to do what it needs to do. Because you sit there and you go, hmm, maybe I want Cocoa Pops for breakfast. No, maybe I want Kellogg's. And then you just sit there for the whole time, like, like in, stuck. Trust your instincts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And take the opportunities that become available. Yes. That seems like a good place to end. Thank you so much, Mo. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. What an honour. Altered Fate with Abla El Sharnubi is produced and edited by Amy Lee, with music by Simon Little and Andrea Triana, and artwork by Micah Van Neck and Richard Granger at Bunker London. If you enjoyed this interview, be sure to like and subscribe to be updated on upcoming episodes. You can also find out more info and get in touch via Instagram at underscore altered underscore fates. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs>